Well, good morning, folks. Today we continue in our walking through the Gospel of Mark uh, story by story, and we have a, a, a story that's very similar to last week's story here today where we have a healing by Jesus, but then we, we see that uh, the plot uh, thickens as Jesus uh, uh, does something so offensive that uh, the Pharisees ally with their natural enemies, those who, uh, who, who Mark uh, calls the Herodians, uh, those who support Herod Antipa, uh, who collaborates with Rome, and uh, and they begin a collaboration uh, that would ultimately lead to Jesus's crucifixion. And then we see Jesus uh, calling from all the disciples who are now following him. They're following him from east, west, north, and south, and and such uh, and in such numbers and with such great demand on him that he needs to uh, have them have a boat ready. So uh, the sons of Zebedee's boats and Peter's boats. Uh, you know, seem to be made available so that he's then we'll see him henceforth often going out to uh, into the Sea of Galilee and preaching from there so that he could uh, be effective and also be safe. Uh, and then he does another thing. He he uh, organizes the disciples by calling uh, a group that he would henceforth mark, that is, would henceforth call the 12. And so 12 uh, apostles, 12 messengers who uh, would be the leaders of all the hundreds of disciples uh, that uh, he has already gathered from east, west, north, east, west, north, and south. And uh, one of these, obviously, you know, he, just like Moses, he goes to the mountaintop and then he calls the 12, uh, recognize, you know, uh, symbolizing the 12 tribes of Israel uh, reconstituted. So an interesting story that carries along our plot line. I want to make sure we don't miss that. But I, but given that, I'd like for us today to to focus on this story of healing and this story of Jesus taking on uh, those of us who have uh, the, what Mark calls uh, hardened spiritual arteries. He talked about hardened hearts. And I want to make just really three major points today. And the first one is to think about orthodoxies and uh, what they mean to us. Uh, orthodoxies are an important part of our life. They're an important part of our life uh, within the church. They're you know within the life of faith and then within our work um, and within our home. Uh, in all aspects of life, we have orthodoxies. Orthodox, the word orthodoxy uh, means simply right thinking, and uh, and they they are. Things that we ourselves gather uh, as is, is really received wisdom uh, by which we are to navigate life, uh, and they are meant to be blessings. And so that's the first point. And, and I, I wanted to have us drill down a little bit by focusing on one sentence here that uh, was read to us from the Acts of the Apostles lesson today by Chris, uh, and that is it, Peter. By the way, I want to make sure you notice the uh, little play on words here. Petros, Peter Petros, a name, uh, you know, it's Simon who's been renamed Petros, the stone, uh, you know, stands up and he says, this Jesus, you know, Petros is speaking, this Jesus is the Petros, the stone that was rejected by you, the builder who would become the cornerstone. Of course, he's quoting Psalm 118, but then he goes on to say something important I want to highlight here. There is salvation in no one else. There is salvation in no one else. What does that mean? That's a pretty bold statement and a statement that uh, can make us uncomfortable as we encounter other world religions and and uh, and, and we and we encounter our secular humanist friends in 
in no one else is their salvation. So let's drill down a little bit about that. And as we think about this notion of orthodoxy, uh, orthodoxies that are meant to bless. The first thing that I want to remind us, we could go to Romans chapter one, verse 16, 17. We can go other places and we would, we would see uh, within the New Testament, this understanding uh, exactly. In fact, we would go to, to uh, John uh, John's prologue, John one, it says in the beginning was the word and the word was God. And the word uh, was, was with God. The word was God. Uh, and, in, 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 in multiple places, we see this statement that uh, Christ is God's logos, the logos. Uh, the logos uh, in Greek thought was uh, the means by which we encounter all reality and it becomes comprehensible to us. So it's God's word to us, that, which makes all of reality uh, something that our brains can uh, comprehend. And uh, it is a, it is something that is, transcends time and transcends all spaces. And so it governs all spaces, all times of our lives. There is no compartment uh, by which we can ex- we can escape this governance of uh, the governor of the world. That's the, the, the classical medieval name for Jesus, you know, the governor general of the universe. The Christ is God's logos, this word to us. This is something we say. And the Christ, remember, becomes in flesh. So there never was a time when we were without the Christ. Uh, Christ, you know, Christ always was. And then uh, it is at, at the birth of Jesus, Christ becomes in flesh. But before Jesus was born, the Christ still was. And after Jesus died, the Christ still is the governor of the world. This is a, an essential claim of our of monotheism, that the word is eternal. And uh, we have this concept called the eternal law. And remember, I've, I've suggested to you that law doesn't mean like, you know, your speed limit law. Law uh, is, is, a, is an English translation of the word, the Greek word nomos, uh, which uh, really is better translated in our in our day as instruction. It's, it's God's guidance. And the way I like to think of it is God's map given to us is here's how you live in uh, fellowship with me and with each other. Here's here's the roadmap to doing that. This is how I lead you to the still waters, because uh, I'm your shepherd, as we've said earlier in our prayers this morning. Um, and so this is the this is the means by which God guides us. And so one of the questions then that that, that begs is how do we discern God's will? And I want to remind you, some of the guys, you know, as good Episcopalians, most of you. Uh, grew up in the Episcopal Church. Some of you did not, but you, you could probably answer the, you know, the, the the question from from the Catechism of how do we discern God's will? And and, and Episcopalians would typically refer to uh, the, uh, the the triangle uh, by by Richard Hooker, uh, you know, of Scripture, tradition, and, and uh, reason. Uh, and so, so through through the gift of Scripture, we discern God's will, and that's our primary source. That's our primary witness to to the life of the of of of, of uh, God with us, and all that we have received, particularly in God's intervention in our relationship through the gift of Jesus. And so, Scripture is our primary source of authority. But then we receive through uh, through through the church. And, and through uh, our various fellowships, traditions uh, by which we interpret that word, and, and uh, it, is, it becomes manifest in all sorts of laws that are, uh, that are in fact, legislative or, or judicially uh, mediated, uh, or simply customs that we receive in our families and in our communities. 
And so through through scripture and tradition and then through uh, dialectical conversations with each other, uh, uh, guided by our effort to mutually live uh, with Jesus, you know, when two or three, two or more gathered in his name, when we gather in his name and we dialectically try to discern God's will, then we see we say that we're guided towards to, to, to discernment of God's will through our reason, that gift that we've been given, the spirit comes alongside so that we might, it, it testifies to the truth so that we might discern God's will. And then, and then, and then I would add the, the, you know, the, 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 uh, the, amendment to, to the, the hookers, uh, uh, you know, tripod, uh, the Wesleyan quadrilateral, John Wesley, a good Anglican added a fourth one. And that is our experience of the Holy spirit. And this is, and this is simply an acknowledgement that, that, that the spirit does intervene in our, in our world, in our communities, in our lives, and then guides us individually to, so that we know the truth. And so these are ways that, that we, discern God's will, uh, God's logos. And so uh, the important point that I want to make is that these traditions, these laws, these customs uh, embed a gift. They embed the gift of the good, the map, where it's passed down to us from generation to generation to generation. So we're able to speak of the faith of, of our fathers and our mothers, and we're, we're able to speak of uh, a foundation, a sure foundation, and 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 this is a gift that is passed on uh, from generation to generation, uh, and it is good, and and we ought to receive it with respect and with humility, um, and that humility uh, is what leads us to receive orthodoxies, uh, to accept them uh, as as. Uh, as worthy of our due consideration whenever we are seeking to discern God's will. And so what is an orthodoxy? Well, it is as it is, it is all of these things I've been talking about, uh, these, these, these embodied doxa, these embodied um, uh, um, cult, enculturated ways of being that are simply the way we grow up. And so uh, we live and move and have our being in this word that surrounds us, but it's embedded in these in these um, cultural artifacts that, you know, con, you know, that we receive as law or custom or whatever, and that they are good. And so it's right and proper for us to get to give them respect. So they're meant to bless. The problem is that our orthodoxies aren't always blessings in the way that we pass them on and the way we um, enforce them. And so that leads us to our lesson today. So for, for as we have been speaking about, uh, Jesus is out to disrupt the social order, as we see in the Gospel of Mark. We've gone through chapters one and two. We've already seen that. Uh, now we're in chapter three, and we see Jesus now engaging uh, the Pharisees once again, the scribes of the Pharisees, actually. The, 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 you know, the scribes are the guardians of orthodoxies. Uh, the scribes are those who are the scribes of the Pharisees are those who are the guardians of the orthodoxies as interpolated by the political movement that was the Pharisaic movement in the in the uh, last couple of centuries uh, uh, before Jesus and and in, in, in continued in the rabbinic tradition. 
And so what we encounter in our story is Jesus is going to engage once again these scribes of the Pharisees, and he's going to do it in a way that combines uh, the stories we've been talking about in the, in the in the last couple of weeks. You know, once we we saw Jesus engage in the synagogue, and then another time we saw him healing at Peter's mother uh, Peter's mother's ha- mother-in-law uh, in, in healing of Peter's mother-in-law at his own home, and then we've seen Jesus do other healings. Well, in this story today, all of those elements are combined into this extraordinary political theater where Jesus is is, um, intentionally uh, and very openly engaging uh, those who have challenged him. Whereas before, uh, he would just simply do the act and they would challenge him. This time, he stages stages something to make a point. So he returns to the synagogue and there is a man with a withered hand. And uh, and there were those in the group who wanted to bring charges against him. And those were the, the, the scribes of the Pharisees. And so they were scrutinizing him, watching closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. I tell you, when I read this, I cannot help but think about the civil rights movement and how the, uh, uh, you know, they, for example, Bull Connor's men down in Birmingham would watch as as as. Uh, is is Pastor Shuttleworth and and uh, and Pastor King and others, uh, Doctor King would uh, uh, would walk out of their hotel and as they as they left as they left the 16th Avenue Baptist Church, uh, they had their men sitting there waiting to see if they would uh, march in protest against the, the judge's injunction. And as soon as they did anything that looked like that, they would swoop down on them and arrest them and throw them into jail. And so and that's the, that was the posture of those who were angered by Jesus's prophetic acts. Now, there's a man with a withered hand. The man with a withered hand is something that we need to contemplate. This is a person uh, who, according to uh, the oral traditions had no business even being in the synagogue. And that's derived from uh, Leviticus 21, verse 16 and following, in which uh, uh, the, uh, the, the law says that no one who has a blemish shall draw near the Holy of Holies. No one who is blind or lame or who has a mutilated face or a limb too long or has a broken foot or broken hand or a hunchback or a dwarf or, or any sort of blemish can draw near into the Holy of Holies, actually into the temple uh, is, is what's spoken about here. And of course, as we've spoken about, the Pharisees have tried to liberalize the the the, the media of redemption by, say, by, by, by moving it from the zip code of the temple out and in, 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 out into uh, the, the, the provinces beyond Judea. And so here we are in Galilee and they're in a synagogue. And so through their interpolations, the rabbinic uh, discussions, a, a lame man had no business being in this holy space, and particularly Jesus had no business uh, violating the orthodoxy about work on the Sabbath and healing the interpolations of the Pharisees or, uh, ordained uh, was a violation of the Sabbath. It was work. Um, and then and then. And then more than that, Jesus is going to do both of these things, you know, both heal someone who had no business being in the synagogue and and then heal that person on the Sabbath uh, as, as a person who didn't have any in, any sort of authority invested in him by office, as would a scribe. And so uh, an awful lot of orthodoxy is being challenged in, in one moment by Jesus. And as I said, this is political theory. The, theater. He stands. He hasn't done a thing. There's a withered man there. Jesus calls him up. 
He says, look here today, I've set before you life. Actually, uh, let me let me back up. I wanted to, before I get back to this, to, uh, to understand what Jesus says, Jesus is going to quote Deuteronomy. He's going to quote Moses uh, or make an allusion to Moses. Moses uh, in, in, in uh, Deuteronomy 30 has just recounted God. Instructed, just recounted his version of of Torah to the to the to the uh, twelve tribes of Israel who were standing on the the banks of the River Jordan, about to in, inhabit the Promised Land, about to cross the River Jordan into the Promised Land, and he, and he puts before them this summer, and he says, "Look here, today I've set before you life and what's good versus death and what's wrong." So he creates this dichotomy. Moses has this very famous dichotomy that then in rabbinic discussions ever at, ever since Deuteronomy uh, has set forth this understanding that there's a choice before us between good and evil and, and death and life. Now, and he says, now choose life so that uh, so that you may. Uh, you may prosper in the land I've put before you. So Jesus is going to invoke this in a very interesting way. So he calls up this man with the withered hand. Uh, he, he said to the man with the withered hand, step up where people can see you. Then he said to them, to the scribes, of the Pharisees, he asks the question that Moses had asked, but he asked it in an interesting way. This, this dichotomy I mentioned. So, you know, the law, is it legal on the Sabbath to do good? Or to do evil? Is it legal on the Sabbath to save life or to kill? Now, folks, I want you to think about that question. If you were the scribes of the Pharisees, which is the safe answer? If you answer yes or no, you condemn yourself in your orthodoxies. If you are to say it's legal on the, the Sabbath to do good, well, then you are agreeing with Jesus. Uh, and, and certainly you can't say it's, it's legal to do evil and, and, or, and, or that it's, it's legal to, to kill. So we ask the question in a really sharp way. And of course, they say nothing. They're not going to be drawn in. And then it says he looks around them with anger. And, and the word there is a really severe anger. It grieved at their hardened arteries, the, their unyielding hearts. They've seen all the healing. They know the, the, they know the meaning of the Sabbath, or at least they should. And yet they uh, are, are unable to look with grace upon this man with a withered hand and grant him the space uh, within the holy space of God uh, to flourish as they flourish. And so there is anger here. We ought to remember as an aside that anger itself is not evil. It's what we do in our anger that becomes evil at times. Anger, though, is, a, is an appropriate reaction uh, when we see hardened hearts. And so he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man did. And in an instant, his hand was made healthy. Remarkable political theater here. Jesus challenging them and just speaking, telling the man to stretch out his hand and healing him in the moment. And at that point, the scripture tells us, Mark tells us, it, it's that point that uh, the political theater is over. The, the Pharisees uh, collaborate with the, the Herodians, and they begin the path that leads to the cross, the story of the cross. We will see, once again, the Herodians and the Pharisees uh, plotting Jesus' death in chapter 12 of Mark's gospel. 
So my point being, the second point is that our orthodoxies often curse. And that was certainly the, uh, something that was true for the, um, the man with the withered hand. And I was I want to share with you some of uh, some some of some of these orthodoxies that I've experienced uh, and it, 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 I'm sure you could add many of your own. But one of the things that's memorable to me as I think of this story was uh, when I was ordained and became ordained a priest. I, I can never forget uh, the. Uh, the time when a, a, a priest whom I really admired, he's actually a bishop, um, wrote me a note and just wanted to remind me that because I was ordained and, and ordained as a priest within the Episcopal Church, which was not in full communion with the Methodist Church, that I must not must not ever again uh, commune in, in Holy Eucharist with my mother and dad, who are Methodists, uh, because we are not in full communion as a church, and I'm an officer of the Episcopal Church now. So he be want to make sure I understand that I not uh, violate that that his notion of orthodoxy. Uh, I, I know that many of you have experienced this in our own church's history, folks who who in their understanding of who may be a priest. Um, that uh, that they decided that well, orthodoxy led them that they should not it would not ever take communion from a woman. I know that that has happened with actually within our particular parish uh, or from a, a gay priest or from a disabled priest. I had that at St. Thomas when I had uh, the first priest in the Episcopal Church as my curate who had um, um muscular dystrophy and was in a wheelchair. And we had folks in the congregation who helped that, that she, she, uh, she was not someone who from whom they could take communion. Uh, there's a famous story that I remember about Martin Luther, uh, who uh, in medieval times challenged one of the orthodoxies of the church. There was a child who was who he he had tutored, who was a, a child born out of wedlock and the child fell uh, and died and uh, hit his head and died. And, the, and because he was born out of wedlock, born out of what the community considered to be sin, uh, the the belief of orthodoxy was that he must not be buried within church grounds and uh, in great anger, much like Jesus's righteous anger. Martin Luther, Martin Luther took on the orthodoxy of his own church and refused to let that be true. And with his own hands, uh, dug the grave for the uh, for that child. Um some of you have suffered disease. Some of you are currently suffering disease. I've shared with you the story of the man who uh, cried with me because he didn't he could not believe that God would have punished him and punished his wife with cancer uh, so that she died. Uh, and, he, and he was just taking on um, as, as orthodoxy that uh, her, her cancer was evidence of God's judgment against them. There are those of you I know today who still hold on to such uh, beliefs that are not re uh, rooted in Christianity, that are certainly not rooted in Jesus's teaching, but re rooted in cultural approbations, uh, uh, accretions that you have absorbed, that, 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 that where you by, uh, whereby you interpret your own disease, your own 
fallibility, your own frailty uh, as some kind of judgment upon you. Uh, and, and this is a, a stigma uh, that is that Jesus is, is, is constantly reminding us uh, is, is not what God intends in the roadmap God gave us to still waters. Um, we recently received a note about our own bishop. Uh, and the divorce through which he's going, and and uh, there's a stigma. Many of many of the folks I know uh, who have gone through divorce have really struggled uh, with divorce of their children, divorce of themselves, divorce of of friends, and and they feel this this uh, anxiety that and a, and a stigma being attached, and so and they struggle because the orthodoxies have taught them that that stigma. Yeah, that the divorce is 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 a sin, and certainly we in the Episcopal Church name the tragedy of divorce as as this is not what God desires for us. One of the conversations that I've had with our bishop recently is is uh, is understanding that God is ever good. God is ever creative, and there are times when uh, marriages. Uh, reach a point at which marriages are no longer marriage because uh, the the couple is no longer capable of of loving each other in the way that Christ loves us, which is what makes our marriages holy. And so uh, divorce is simply a, a means by which we name something that is already true. The marriage no longer exists uh, in, in the way that we would make it that, it, that makes it recognizable. And, uh, and so uh, one of the things that uh, Prince and I spoke about is recognizing uh, divorce as God's creative period at the end of the sentence that allows us to have and experience the resurrection that God desires for us. And I know that many of you have experienced that, and I have witnessed it uh, in so many parts of my own life. Uh, but this is one of the orthodoxies uh, that, that curses us. Uh, there's a, a stigma of wedlock. I've talked about the bastard child who was un, who, who orthodoxy said could not be buried uh, within the church grounds, uh, even to this day, uh, there are those of us who who uh, look upon children uh, who are who are born in the wrong order uh, as as somehow uh, less than children, uh, and in their parents uh, being less than other parents um, because they did things in the wrong order. And uh, I I always smile at that because I know our church history and the notion of of uh, of that is very Victorian. Uh, at least in in the West, uh, but 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 we have these stigmas that bring bring about shame, and Jesus comes and tries to disrupt that. Whether you have a withered hand or any of the things I've mentioned, one of the things that I also want to mention about. Um, about orthodoxies is the, the role of the state. We have many churches that uh, are called orthodox churches, you know, starting with the uh, orthodox church in Bulgaria, in Russia, in other places. Throughout, There are many churches that are called the orthodox church of this or that. And these are examples of churches that were co-opted by uh, the rise of the, the nation state, uh, rise in, in this case of kings uh, who co-opted the church and took control of the church and defined what proper worship would be allowed within their dominion so that they were able to control uh, the definition of what right thinking was so that it went along not with what Jesus's teaching was always, but rather with what um, with what the, 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 
the, the royalty, what the, those in power uh, wanted to have. And Jesus is constantly challenging that. That's exactly the story we've been talking about. So orthodoxies are, are meant to be blessings, but orthodoxies often curse. And we ought to ask, why is it that our orthodoxies often curse? Why is it that we find ourselves uh, receiving Jesus's gaze with anger, Jesus being deeply grieved at, at, at our translating these maps to the still waters into maps to shame and very, very, uh, you know, um, tumultuous waters, waters of chaos rather than waters of peace. Well, to get at that, I wanted to, to bring about, uh, just talk about something briefly that uh, is, is known as the Protestant principle. Some of you may have heard of it. Uh, it is uh, something that was well-documented, taught by a, a theologian of the 20th century named Paul Tillich. Uh, he's famous for it, but he's actually simply um, recapitulating the classical teachings, uh, you know, principally from St. Augustine, the Bishop of Hippo in the, in the, in the uh, year around 430. Uh, and, and the Protestant principle is something that I think we should hang on to and remember particularly this Easter, and particularly when we encounter any of these orthodoxies in our lives that, uh, that we see creating people uh, and, and casting people out of the circle of God's love. And so the Protestant principle simply recognizes that we, we live east of Eden. We live in a world that has fallen. We live in a world, as we talked about on Easter Sunday, in which we ourselves have this, this tendency to, in fear, uh, move towards idolatry. And we also are, are people who live uh, in, in, a, in, a, in a world in which there are the powers and principalities that are seeking to tempt us, uh, as Paul talks about, and to take advantage of our own weaknesses and our own fallenness. And so there are five finite things, and, and these finite things can grasp us and take over our faith and then, and, and then pose as though they are God's word when they are, in fact, the opposite of God's word. And again and again and again, we do this. And so the Protestant principle recognizes this characteristic of us, that in our fallenness, we tend to uh, be grasped by finite things and, and, uh, and see them as God. God ordained things. And, and so one of the things that uh, the Protestant principle does is it suggests that we look upon all of our received doxa, our received laws, our received traditions, our received customs, uh, whether they are within our community, within our nation, within our family, uh, within our faith, uh, and, and to see them as inherently ambiguous because they are mediated by we, by us, our uh, us, we, you know, finite creatures who who imperfectly discern God's word, always imperfectly discern God's word, and so we receive them and we name them as good, but that. Which which we receive is good. We name as ambiguously good. The, the good is found right there. You know, the gold is right there uh, immersed in, in, in uh, the, the, you know, the igneous rock. And so sometimes we get confused about which is which, but it's ambiguous. And so we have to be very careful to discern together, which is which. And so the premise is that all the things that we encounter, all the material things in our lives, all the institutional things that we receive as part of our lives and that we create as part of our lives uh, are intended by God to point beyond ourselves, to point beyond this finite world to something that is that is eternal. 
that transcends time, that transcends our spaces, that's that's an inexhaustible love uh, that is beyond our capacity to comprehend, but is the very depth of our lives. Uh, and, And so the premise is that that's the purpose of all finite things. They are not themselves the end. They are, excuse me, not them. They themselves are not the means, but rather, uh, the the uh, I'll get it right. They are not the end, but the means that 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 point to the things that uh, to which we should cling, uh, which is what Augustine said. So all finite things point beyond themselves to the to the to the one God who is infinite, and that's our premise. And therefore, we are uh, a little skeptical always skeptical of the maps that we receive. We see them as good, but yet we have a, tr- a prophetic eye that that is always inspecting the good we received uh, and the way that we carry on the good that we have received and distort the good that we've received against the, our own tendencies towards idolatry, against our own tendencies to have religious pride. Our church is the way they are not. Our church is are the ones who are holy. We are the righteous ones. They are not. Whether that's within the church or within the community. I remember a story I've just read, uh, 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 Black Baptist Church in Georgia in the 1960s. Uh, a man arose who, uh, to speak in his church and spoke very eloquently and moved many within the church. Um, to uh, stand up and begin mar- uh, marching and, and supporting the students against the students, uh, student nonviolence coordinating committee, uh, community committee, I can get it right, student nonviolent coordinating committee, committee uh, to, to get them to help people get registered to vote. He spoke very eloquently and moved many people to his side. And immediately the senior pastor stood up in the pulpit, preached a sermon against this, saying it was unorthodox, would only lead to God's judgment, and then immediately excommunicated him and all of those who had been persuaded from him from the from that uh, church. Uh, we have religious pride. We have ecclesial pride. And then we also um, uh, have a, you know, we, we have a, a word to speak against all of our uh, tendencies towards a, 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 a secular self-sufficiency, whether that be, be via the acquisition of wealth, our military might, uh, or other means of power. So there's a, we receive all of these doxa, all these customs, but we look at them with a critical eye in our generation, each generation, and with the assumption that God is creating all things new. And that's what we mean by Easter eyesight that we receive the good from previous generations. We expect God to be bursting the old wine skins and creating new wine skins and filling them with the fresh wine that is the wine of our time. And so therefore we refuse to fall into this heresy by which we circumscribe God's love and we build fences around the Eucharistic table, assuming that God is always challenging us to expand, to push beyond the present in to, to, uh, to expand the fellowship of God's love and, and our own fellowship to all brothers and sisters we encounter. And love, uh, brothers and sisters, uh, that's what we call Easter eyes. I pray that each of us today will be especially blessed with that vision as we remember these stories. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.